This morning, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. You don't have to stand, but would you uh, just read these verses with me as they come up here on the screen? So let me lead you off with, let's pray these verses. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's just pray over that for a minute. Father God, you are our one true God. We come to you this morning knowing that you are our Father and we are your children. We thank you, Lord God, for the great blessing of serving you, of having faith to believe in you. We praise you, God, for who you are and what you do in our lives. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to apply your grace, that your rich blessings would be not only bestowed on us, but that we would see them for what they are. We ask that you would be involved in our lives and in a way that would draw us away from sin and towards you. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can have the promise that you will always forgive us. Take now this time, use it to your great glory and benefit in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you grew up in a Protestant tradition of some kind, you know, we love titles, so we put the title of the Lord's Prayer on this particular passage. Uh, we find it also in Luke chapter 11, if you want to look at that, besides Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you're a really deep theologian, you might call this the disciples' prayer, because Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Or perhaps you grew up in a Catholic tradition, and you simply refer to it as the Our Father. However you refer to it, it's safe to say that this is representative of a tradition, Christian tradition. Uh, it happens to be the most quoted passage in the Bible, both within the church and outside the church, which in and of itself, for me, is quite an interesting thing. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is continue with this thought that I shared with you the last time I spoke several weeks ago about prayer. If you remember, we took a look in the book of Ephesians. Paul had a short prayer in chapter 1. Now, if you've been around Stonebridge for any time at all, you know that prayer is an important element of our church. We say that it's a key tenet in our DNA. And we like to suggest the use of a little book. It's the Handbook to Prayer written by Ken Boa. We think that it's a great way to help us develop this discipline of praying. Well, here's what Ken says in the introduction of that little handbook about the Lord's Prayer. He says, this handbook is structured around eight forms of prayer, which are based on the model of the Lord's Prayer. The eight forms of adoration, confession, renewal, petition, intercession, affirmation, thanksgiving, and closing prayer are all illustrated in this model prayer. That's a mouthful for me. Well, if you haven't received a copy of Ken's little handbook to prayer, and you'd like one, just search out one of us in the back of the room at the end of the service. Jay's waving them up in the back in case you are wondering, and we'll see that you get your own personal copy. Well, let me rewind time for a minute 
and expose my age, in the 60s, yeah, all the old people in the room nodded and smiled, just in case you don't get to see that. In the 60s, when I was growing up, public prayer was pretty normal. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but even government meetings started with a prayer before the meeting was called to session. And also back in the 60s, at least where I grew up, now my parents didn't attend church, but there was this higher belief that a God existed, and they had, you know, donned the doors of a church from time to time. My mother taught me a little prayer as a young child. Let's put it up here on the screen and see if you remember this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, I got to acknowledge here, the theology of this is kind of iffy, you know, as I look at it. And I would imagine in our day and age, we, we probably can't pray this prayer to be politically correct. I mean, who talks to kids about dying when they're going to sleep? That's harassment of, of some kind. But for those of you that know me, I am easily distracted. So I couldn't get out of my mind, where did this thing come from that in the 1960s, I'm praying it? And then it got worse. I was minding my own business yesterday afternoon out on my porch, kind of flipping through the slides that they were going to use this morning, and I had up on my, my laptop this prayer, and my eight-year-old granddaughter walks up to me. She goes, Papa, let me see that. And she reads the prayer, and she says, oh, no, that's wrong. That's not the right prayer. And I went, excuse me? And she said, let me tell you what the right prayer is, Papa. Now I lay me down to sleep. She had it memorized, by the way. I pray the Lord my soul to keep as angels watch me through the night until I wake in the morning light. I'm a mess. I mean, I just did this research on this thing, and she's telling me I got the wrong lyrics. So here's what I discovered. Back in 1920, this prayer was made popular in a song. Two fellows that wrote this song, Sidney Mitchell and George Meyer. Now, if you're a historian, you know the World War I had just ended around 1918. So the idea of death was pretty you know, prominent on the American scene back then. Here's some of those lyrics just to prove that she was wrong and I was right. Just <laughs> want to be clear with this. I can hear my mom praying, now I lay me down to sleep. While I'm beside her saying, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. This is my proof, just to be clear. If mommy thought I'd forget these words, I know her heart would break. I've forgotten many lessons that I learned in childhood days, but mommy's tender blessings, they seem to cling to me always. And though I've lost my daddy and my mommy, still I always keep the memory of now I lay me down to sleep. That's a song two adult men wrote, and they called their parents mommy and daddy. Things were different in the 20s. But just like this song or prayer, wouldn't you agree with me that tradition can have an, a huge influence on what we do, even when we do it? Now, Israel and the Jews in the first century were no different, and that's where we enter the text this morning in the first century. They celebrated tradition in a lot of ways, and prayer was just one of those traditions. I want to start by making this observation. Jesus wants his disciples, who are the audience here, to understand that there's more to prayer than tradition. 
Just something to think about. And to further explain, let's just back up again. How did they get tradition as a prayer to begin with? Just so we have that kind of level set in our minds. Well, many Jewish historians look back to Moses' command in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, as that beginning point, that establishment of the daily ritual of Jewish prayers. Now, this text is referred to as the Shema, which in Hebrew literally means listen and then obey. Hear, listen and then obey, O Israel. Now, fast forward back to the first century. By this time, Jews formally prayed three times each day, in the morning when they got up, in the middle of the day, and then in the evening before they went to bed or retired. The Shema, these verses, along with the Ten Commandments, were recited during these times, along with other things. Particularly, the Shema was recited twice, once in the morning when they got up, and once in the evening when they went to bed. This was a signal that every day would begin with a focus on God, and every day would end with a focus on God because he was all-encompassing. If we even go to today, in fact, if you were to visit Israel, and I know some of you have, and all of you should, as Michael often reminds us, and you entered the old city of Jerusalem to the Temple Mount area, you'd find Jews praying before the Wailing Wall. Now, that's an excavated portion of the foundation wall that supports the temple, what we call the Temple Mount. It rises about 60 feet out of the ground, but there's another 40 feet unexcavated below it. So it's every bit in the, fir- in the first century of 100 feet tall. Well, today, Jews stand before that wall because it's the closest they can get to the temple. And this is where they offer their prayers to their God. So I think my basis for talking about this particular section of Scripture is to suggest that there is a ritual, there's a tradition for praying amongst the Jews, and it's really significant, and it extends back centuries. There's a particular couple of verses that come to mind for me. David writes, centuries earlier in Psalm 141, just these two verses, O Lord, I call upon thee, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to thee. May my prayer be counted as incense before thee, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. You see, to a Jew in the first century, prayer was a substitute sometimes for the sacrifices and offerings that took place at the temple if they were not there. Now, I get a little help with that idea from a fellow by the name of Dr. Craig Keener, who's a Jewish scholar and historian. Here's what he says. The Lord's Prayer is thoroughly Jewish in its content, form, and language. Over time, it came to be prayed three times daily. And most scholars believe that Jesus here probably adapts an early form of what became a basic synagogue prayer, the Kaddish. So prayer is a central idea here in the minds of all of the Jewish people. Now, what I I want you to do as we start to drill down into this is take a look in your Bibles at Matthew 6, those verses 9 through 13, which are actually the format of that prayer. There's something really important to notice here that we've got to get right as we look at it. Jesus is teaching about prayer. This is not a pause in his teaching to pray, albeit just repeating these words would be a form of prayer. But there's more to it than that. This is not exclusively about tradition. 
And we're going to hear from Jesus that God actually uses prayer as a central element in our lives to refine us, to change us, to draw us nearer to him. Let me illustrate with a story out of my own life. You know, Patty and I became believers after we had been married for 10 years, and by then we had three boys. Uh, We came to faith in Pennsylvania and within a year or two moved to the Chicago area with those three boys. And when we moved, they were ages seven, five, and three. We were new believers. I'm going to give myself some grace and say we had a limited understanding of what God's Word taught, but by no means did we have a deep understanding. But the thing that was true for us was that God was real. He had changed us pretty significantly as a couple. So what we did every night with our three sons was pray with them at the end of the day. Now, I got to tell you, I don't really know why we did. I think on a Sunday morning, somebody said we should. And so we just went, okay, if this is the program, this is what we're going to do. So every night, Patty and I would kneel next to each of the boys' beds individually. And we'd let them pray. Now, as you can imagine, based on their age, sometimes it was pretty short. But other times it was meaningful. You know, before they prayed, we'd talk to them. After they prayed, we'd talk to them. And we've got, we got a pretty good glimpse into their little hearts and what they were thinking at that point. Now, something else that's true is they got to hear us pray. So when we did, we often just simply prayed that Jesus would become real to them. And that just became a normal practice of every day. Now, back then, I traveled quite a bit. So often, Patty would be home by herself, and she'd be the one kneeling next to the bed when I was gone praying with the three kids. Here's one thing I can tell you. Life was chaotic back then. I'd describe it as a bit of dysfunction. If you're a young parent now, you probably are dealing with that. But you know the one thing that happened in our house? At the end of the day, we knelt down and prayed with our sons. Now, that in and of itself is interesting. I've already told you I don't take credit for that. Maybe we were just trying to respond out of obedience. But that simple practice taught me a really deep lesson as a father. It taught me that God ruled over my sons, not me. That they were his, and I was just a steward here. And praying for them benefited them and me as well. Now, I'm going to admit my example lacks a little here in this stretch of a comparison I am about to make. You know, Jesus is the word. I'm just a guy. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Prayer or misunderstanding of it must be an issue that he needs to clarify it. And I would say at a minimum, Jesus is making an effort in his teaching to readjust their focus. And one of the difficulties on a one-time Sunday morning is developing the proper context so that we don't look at the passage with the wrong light. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 with me for just a moment. As you're looking at that, let me just make a couple of notes. Jesus is traveling in the Galilean region, and he's visiting Jewish synagogues. This is the beginning of his public ministry, and it's immediately following his testing with Satan in the wilderness. Now, he makes it a priority. He focuses his time on the synagogues, 
where Jews would gather as an alternate location for the temple in their hometowns. These were places of refuge. They'd worship there, but these synagogues were also community centers. They were a place they could go to just escape the Roman oppression for a moment. So this is what the text says is going on. Now it also says that Jesus' message to them was the gospel of the kingdom. He was here to preach, and his message was a single topic. Now, it also tells us that as he did that, he also demonstrated some miraculous power by healing people. Now, I don't think it should be a surprise. Him doing that caused word to travel, and people came from great distances just to follow him from place to place. Imagine yourself in the first century, not a lot of medical help there. I think in this room, we've probably got 30 surgeons sitting amongst us. If something happened here, the battle would be who got to be first, I think. Uh, back then, that was not the case. Now, Jesus' message to them was this gospel of the kingdom. But that's not the end of it. If you look on in Matthew chapter 5, in the first two verses, Matthew tells us that Jesus, after some period of time, notices this big crowd that just follows him around. And on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, he takes a position at an elevation above them, and then surrounds himself with the 12 men that would later be called the apostles. When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them. Well, if you haven't traveled to Israel once again, imagine for me a moment standing on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The land gradually ascends to some high ridges. And the picture I'd want you to paint in your mind is the idea of Jesus climbing, maybe even a better word, is hiking to a place that would allow him to look down on this big crowd. And then he surrounds himself with the 12 apostles who are his primary audience. Now this prayer we're looking at this morning is contained within this teaching time that's introduced here in Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew 5.1 and it ends in Matthew 7 verse 29. What I want you to do now with me is take a look at the reaction at the end of the teaching to Jesus' overall message. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes did. You see, the multitude has gone from just being amazed about the fact that this Jesus could heal people, and now they're amazed at the way that he goes about teaching the text tells us that he teaches with authority, and it's the kind of authority that supersedes their religious leaders. Let's remember the scribes that are particularly called out here in this verse were the ones that protected God's holy scriptures. They had that expertise. These folks clearly understood that Jesus had a greater authority than the ones that actually protected God's scriptures. Now, I would say in my unsanctified mind, that means they must have had some glimpse he was the very word of God. Now, at this time, here's a couple of things that that text doesn't tell us as you're looking at it. The text doesn't say they were insulted. Doesn't even say that they thought Jesus was blaspheming. You know, that's reserved for later. 
That's the religious leaders who felt threatened by this Jesus. That wasn't the crowd here, and that was not the 12 apostles. Now, what I want to observe is that we learn just one thing in this text that we need to take into verses 9 through 13. Jesus has authority in what he says. And the prayer we're about to look at is part of that authoritative teaching. It is the very words from God to us. Now, prior to launching this discourse on prayer, Jesus makes another statement in chapter 6, verse 1, if you want to look at it with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Two ideas here. The first idea is he's in a process of addressing three topics, giving alms, helping the people that were poor, prayer, which we're going to look at here, and then fasting, the idea of putting things aside from ourselves for the purpose of discipline. This is kind of a short discourse on what not to pray. But there's this specific example in that second text I read, verse 5, where Jesus is focused on this idea, people shouldn't mimic the hypocrites. Well, in our contemporary world, we have a definition of hypocrites. It's somebody that says one thing and does something else. Maybe you've labeled someone that way, or you've been labeled a hypocrite. But in the first century, it takes on a little bit of a different meaning. A hypocrite was an actor in a play, someone who wore a mask to disguise who they really were so that the audience would see them as the character in the play. Jesus is declaring here that prayer is not acting. It's not pretending to be someone that you are not. And if you do approach prayer this way, he says you receive no benefit. I want to just remind you, this is Jesus authoritatively teaching. It's direct. He's giving a strong warning to all of us, and particularly the 12 apostles that needs further attention. Now, in his typical teaching fashion, Jesus goes from what not to do to what to do to illustrate contrast. He declares that prayer is personal. And it's got this significant private dimension to it. Look in verse 6 of Matthew 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. He continues in verse 7 by declaring that in that private setting, you're not to repeat meaningless phrases. He says, and when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Now, he even credits that the Gentiles pray, albeit not to the one true God, but they pray. The idea of praying to a higher power in the first century was a cultural norm. Jesus explains that his people pray differently. Now, why is this important? Jesus has a simple answer. God is sovereign. He is Yahweh, Jehovah. He knows what you need before you ask him, and that's what verse 8 says. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That might beg another question for you. If he knows what I need before I ask, why do I pray? Interesting question. Don't forget verse 6 and how he ended verse 6. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. There's something that comes to us from prayer. Now, I like how D.A. Carson frames this up. He says, as early as the second century, a document now referred to as the Didache, and 
in our language it would be the teaching, prescribes that Christians should repeat this prayer three times a day. Now that's not necessarily bad, but just as it is not necessarily bad to repeat in unison in our church services, we must never do so thoughtlessly. And we should remember that Jesus himself conceived of the prayer as a model. This is how you should pray, he said, not this is what you should pray. How to pray, not what. Something we remember now as we take a look at this text briefly. Now, looking at the framework, we can easily see that it's broken into two divisions, and I'd ask you to look at that with me. The first division has three petitions specifically focused on God's glory. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the second division, like the first, with three petitions as well, this focused on man's need. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Don't lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, verses 14 and 15 I included this morning for this purpose because Jesus returns to the idea of forgiving debts in those two verses, which he identifies in verse 12. He uses a different word here that we translate transgressions, but verses 14 and 15 are there so that we can have a better grasp of verse 12. And one last observation on the framework. If you're a Bible study student, you know this already. The end of verse 13 is in brackets in your Bible. Do you see that in your Bibles? These words aren't found in the original text. They, they were inserted a little bit later. Now that said, these words apply perfectly to this framework Jesus establishes of glorifying God. And it's a fitting close to a prayer. The Hebrew word amen, amin, pronounced in Hebrew, literally means this is true. This is certain. So it's a good end. Now the idea of God's glory is a concept we lose too often in our contemporary world, but as late as the 17th century, that wasn't the case. I want to expose you to that for just a minute. In children's curriculum in the church back then, they had a practice of teaching kids by asking a question and giving an answer. In this case, I'm referencing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In that catechism, the first question asks, what is man's purpose? Now, in their vernacular back then, it's what is the chief end of man? In our day and age, tons of books on man's purpose, isn't there? A lot of stuff said about how we should focus ourselves the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, has a simple answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What a great place to start with our kids, huh? Well, Jesus says, pray then in this way. He's focused on 12 men who would become apostles. And they need to understand how to teach other people to pray. Jesus says, do it this way. So let's take a look at those two pieces. In the first division, that very first phrase, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, in the original Greek text, that word Father is a Greek word, pater. And that's how it's translated for us because that's where we get our English text from. But it's likely, as Jesus is doing this address to these folks, that he's speaking in an Aramaic dialect, and he's probably using the word Abba. 
You guys are familiar with that. You know, Paul uses both the Aramaic and the Greek word in one sentence in Romans chapter 8, 15. He says there, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, that's the Aramaic, and Father, or Pater, that is the Greek. Either way, Jesus is emphasizing our family relationship with God. Now, I've heard it, and some have said that Abba can be attributed to something like the word daddy in our language. And I've got to admit, I don't care for that much. If you do, sorry, I want to go a different route. I prefer the term that a lot of European countries use for father, and that is papa. It just comes across to me as both endearing, but it doesn't lose the reverence that comes when we address God. Now, I, I could be simple-minded here. You know, my grandkids call me Papa, so I might just like it for that reason. But if you were in Europe, a Papa's a father, I would be a grandpapa. I even like that better, but that's for another day there. Well, the second thing Jesus does in this phrase is he combines hallowing God's name with that family tie, our father. Now, hallowed is a strange word in our language. I can say with a high level of confidence, I've never used that word. Uh, I doubt many of you have. But it literally means to make holy. Peter uses this word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It might be easier to understand with that verse. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That word translated sanctify in 1 Peter is this same word. Going back to Dr. Keener for a minute, maybe this can be of some help. He says, hallowing God's name was the most characteristic feature of Jewish ethics, along with the opposite, profaning the name. He goes on and says, everything is forgivable. Some teachers said, except profaning the name. So this idea of holding God in reverence is not a new idea. But he goes on and he says, Jewish hearers would also understand the implications of the prayer in the present tense for their present existence. But they could only understand it in the future if in the present they valued God's name. That's what he's basically saying here in this sentence. Now, one of the ways we hallow God's name is in the way we live. I contend that Jesus is saying we should be praying that we are in conformity with God's will and that we are in obedience to God's will. You know, earlier in Jesus's message from a context point of view, he's already said to these disciples, Matthew chapter five, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. You see, hallowing God's name is living in obedience to him that they may see your good works, Jesus says. Think about how high the Jews held God in reverence, even by the names that they called them. Just for your interest, there's a list of them that they're going to put up here on the screen. It was if they were never ending. You see, Jesus isn't challenging their reverence for God. He's not asking them to disrespect or disregard their respect for God. He wants them to approach God with respect, but also see him as their father, that there was this intimate father-child relationship with him. He wants both. Well, in the last two petitions, your 
kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus implores them to think to the future. Look for what is yet to come. He, he mentions two things, his kingdom, which in its final phase is yet to come, and man's complete obedience. I get that in this phrase that his will would be done. Well, if his will's done, we would be completely, perfectly obedient to him. And in this statement, Jesus focuses on the objective of God's plan being finished. He says, as it is in heaven. Here's the only thing I want to remind us of. This is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion that God's kingdom might not come. It's more consistent with the idea of petitioning God's plan to be completed as soon as possible. Now, some of us are familiar with the term Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come now. It's, it's a lot more like that sentiment. And that final phrase, your will be done, boy, that's continually continuing to acknowledge and affirm this idea of us living in obedience. You could say it's a sense of a victory declaration. Sin isn't to be normal in my life. It is not to be inevitable. God's plan is going to be completed. Jesus is telling the disciples, I need to pray to God in that way. Well, to summarize these three petitions in the best language I can come up with, you may come up with something better. I think he says pray then in this way so that when you pray, you worship God as the one true and only God, but you also see him as your father, that you have an intimate relationship with him. I think also he's saying that when you pray, pray specifically for the completion of his plan and his confirmation in your, your own heart of your salvation, your entry into his heaven. And then third, I think he is saying that we should be praying that God would actually work in us to accomplish his will. That we'd actually be people that take our faith and put legs on them and do something about our faith in the community we live in the world around us. One last observation, these three petitions about glorifying God, in my mind, completely dismantle the Old Testament practice of needing a priest to reach God. You know, if you th think about it, he's basically saying God's our Father and you have direct access to him. It's an interesting way to begin a prayer. Well, the second section that we'll finish off on is how to pray focusing on man's needs in light of this glory that we have just talked about. And Jesus turns his attention to life as a human being. The first phrase, give us this day our daily bread. This reminds me how James frames it in chapter 4 of his letter, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, for you young guys facing your careers, I, I think they call that strategic planning. But he goes on in verse 14. Yet, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Isn't that how God's sovereignty works? We can't add a moment to our life without God's grace. But we think we can, huh? Sometimes we just put it off for a while. Well, he finishes in verse 15 with this statement. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. That's reality. Without God's grace, 
there's not much we can do. Jesus wants us to recognize that something as straightforward as our food, our clothes, the place we live, the things that we do on a daily, regular basis won't happen unless God applies the grace for that to be true. So what's the best way to remember that God's at the steering wheel and we aren't? Jesus says, regularly acknowledge it and don't take it for granted. You know, there's this interesting thing that comes when we do that, when we don't forget that. And that is, we then entertain God by glorifying him. And we have an opportunity then to receive the blessing from the gift giver. Our very needs met on a daily basis. Well, moving on, that next passage, the word debts in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I'm going to just cut to the chase here on this. It's most used in the New Testament for sin. And verses 14 and 15, if you look at those two verses, help to validate that. That word transgression is used most often in the New Testament for sin. Now, I'm not going to deny that if you thought this was a financial term, that the love of money is not a sin. It is, but this language that Jesus uses is much broader than just that. He addresses two aspects of sin. First, our sin. That's what we bring on us. That's what we're completely, totally, 100% accountable for. But the second dimension he talks about is other sins against us that impact us, that come from somebody else to us. Look here at his language. In both cases, there's only one antidote, and that's forgiveness. That's what Jesus says for both of these. He's teaching us the need to petition God that we would have hearts to forgive, and he points this thing at God solely and exclusively. You know, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Interesting idea. Paul says in his Colossians letter in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Why? Just as the Lord God forgave you, so also should you. Now, I, I appreciate another scholar, Arthur Pink, who goes by A.W. Pink. This is kind of a deep quote, but I think it's worth considering. Here's what he says, as it is contrary to the holiness of God, sin is a defilement. It's a dishonor and a reproach to us as it is a violation in the law. It's a crime and as to the guilt which we contact thereby. It is a debt. As creatures, we owe a debt of obedience unto our maker and governor. And through failure to render the same on account of our rank disobedience, we have incurred a debt of punishment. And it is for this we implore a divine pardon. Let me parse it quickly. When we pray for forgiveness from God, Pink says we're asking for a divine pardon. It's like going to the courts and saying, yeah, I'm wrong, but let me go. That's what we're doing, Pink says. He says sin dishonors our relationship with God. He describes it as a crime. And who can pardon it? Only God through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is exhorting his disciples in this verse 
to turn to God in those times. But he's also instructing them that they need to have a heart to forgive others who sin against them. Now, I like this really simple phrase that I'll credit to John MacArthur. Man's greatest problem is sin. You ever think about that for yourself? That sin is your greatest problem? You should. I should. He goes on and he said, man's greatest need is forgiveness. Wow, doesn't that trump sin then? It takes it away. John says that's what God provides. Much simpler way than Pink said, I guess. I don't know. He's much more articulate in some senses. Well, I want to share with you a lesson I learned this week on this as we're kind of wrapping this up. You know, years ago, Patty and I were part of a church in uh, the Chicago area. It was our family church. We'd been there for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, and it went through some deep trouble that resulted in the teaching pastor resigning. And when that happened, folks tended to line up on one of two camps. And there were these broken relationships as a result of that. And, and it wasn't a healthy thing that happened in the end. So you can imagine that there were relationships that people had that were just broken. And for Patty and I, one comes to mind specifically, we had a close relationship with a couple, a family that we had served alongside for years, and that relationship was completely fractured, just gone. Uh, Patty and I had moved on to another church and were involved in ministry elsewhere, uh, not because we ran, but because it was at that time what God had laid on our heart and the right thing to do. Years passed. We never really got over it. I don't know if you deal with stuff like that, but, you know, it was always kind of in the back of my mind bothering me. And then one day, as only your wife can, she looks at me, and Patty says, you know, you need to call that husband, and we need to get to work on reconciliation. Now, years have passed. What do you think my reaction was? Ain't going to do it. Not happening. But for those of you that know my dear, lovely wife, you know that she can be pretty forceful, and I pretty much fold, you know, when that happens. Now, I don't want to suggest to you that I didn't have a heart for reconciliation. But here's what I do want to suggest. I had rationalized the whole thing. Eh, we had a theological differing point of view. And, you know, relative philosophy, we didn't see things the same way. We didn't even understand what peace looked like. I mean, it was that kind of thing. Well, let me fast forward. I was reminded of that this week. Because that couple was in our house on Friday night enjoying the evening together. You see, I went and saw that guy. And the first conversation didn't go all that well. But we kept meeting and we kept talking. And in the end, we reconciled our relationship. That was good enough for me. But you know what God had in mind? It was so public amongst all of those people in that area that reconciliation started happening there. I want you to take in Jesus' words here. If you take one thing this morning from anything that I'm saying, take this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the ones that would be the apostles, pray that you can forgive others when they sin against you. Now, hey, I can't know what's going on in your life or what's gone in your life or what deep troubles you've had with people or what broken relationships there were. But here's what I can say. You can take in God's word right now and you can pray to him 
for him to give you a forgiving heart, whatever that is. And as you do, to trust him that he'll do something with that. Now, you know what he might do? He might calm your heart. He might grant you forgiveness in your own heart because maybe time has passed and the distance is so great there's not even a practical relationship there. But you know what he might do? He might send you on a mission. He might send you to see that person. He might challenge you to try and reconcile that situation. And here's all I can promise you. Only good can come from that. Because if God's in it, you will either have a peace in your heart or you will have a new friend back in your fold. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Well, he makes one final comment. He says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. By now you figured out I can't stay away from James. So let me just read two passages to you, one from James and one from Paul. James says, temptation comes from within and God doesn't tempt us towards evil. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he doesn't tempt anyone. Paul says in his Corinthians letter, the first one in chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Simple phrase here for Jesus. He's telling us to petition God. To realize that God is the one that draws us back from sin. That lets us see that it is temptation in our heart before we get to sin. And he's reminding us to pray that that would be true. Let me try and explain it this way with a series of questions. What's the best way to be delivered from evil? Answer, overcome temptation, which leads to sin. What is Jesus instructing us to do? Pray to God for the way of escape. And turning back to James again, he makes this statement in chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How? Turn to God who delivers us from evil. Three petitions. My simple conclusion for them is pray in this way, that you might and I might understand that it is only God's grace that sustains us. There's nothing about me that does. Pray that you have a heart to repent of sin and seek forgiveness, not just from God, but even those who might have sinned against you. And third, he says, request God's intervention to protect you from sin. I would just suggest those are three good things to pray about. Well, I started this morning with two ideas. We're going to finish it up now. God's glory and man's need. Now, to introduce these ideas, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Approaching God in prayer is one of, if not the most significant thing in your life. And it is one of the things we do the least of. Sad history for us. But Jesus says prayer is not rote memory. It's based on a relationship, a relationship with a God with whom you have no secrets. Jesus says he knows you, and he doesn't want an act. He wants your heart. He wants you to come just the way you are in what 
whatever state you are in. That's the context of Jesus' prayer outline. Pray then in this way. And he teaches these two concepts in part. When you approach God this way, it glorifies him and it changes you. Jesus explains two ideas. Two ideas he wants us to remember when we come and pray. Focus on his glory. And don't be embarrassed to turn to him to fulfill your needs. Now, I would contend that when we understand these things and we come to that bracketed verse that was added a little later, we can say with sincerity those things, for thine is the glory and the power, and it is forever. We can say those things because we understand. Now, we're going to close this morning, and I'm going to ask you to stand. And at this point in time, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and in the quietness of your own hearts, not say anything. But with this understanding, let me read to you these verses. Take them in. Think about them. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.